0: A, uh, in high school, a good friend of mine a mutual friend he uh, His first job was working in a mortuary and uh, his kind of a family business and he had been uh, uh, brought up in it and uh, when he graduated from high school, he went to work uh, and he was trained for about six months. As they would prepare the bodies for open casket uh, services, which you can imagine is kind of a you know interesting job for your first job and uh, so he spent about six months being tutored in this, working under somebody else, and the first time he was on his own preparing this uh, older gentleman that had just died, getting ready for an opus casket funeral. They hadn't explained to him that when someone has just recently died, within a day or two, that as the body dehydrates and the muscles get tight, sometimes there's a bit of movement going on. And he was, uh, they brought a real nice suit that belonged to this older gentleman, putting him in it. And as he's struggling to do that, all of a sudden one of the legs kicked up by itself. And he said, that's it. (laughs) He never went back to that job. So... I always like to see who's dead? We'll pray for them first, try to get some movement. It's, uh, I, I have a, a great, uh, sense in the Holy Spirit, uh, for you as a church. And I think, um, in all the years I've been coming here, which I think has been 12 years maybe, 10 or 12 years, something like that. Um, it's, uh, I've always very much enjoyed the worship, enjoyed the sense of community. Uh, community is one of the great four values God has for the church, that uh, it's, it's kind of the pillar, you know, of why we're here. But uh, I've also really felt the, uh, the missional call upon you all, not just to have good meetings, not just to have good community, but to really reach the uh, community and beyond that. And I think there's something on you as a church for the nations but in praying, three of you are excited. I'm with the right group here. <laughs> but uh, it was—it wasn't an elder. Okay, good. <laughs> We're getting somewhere. <laughs> the elders know they have to say kind of, kind of say Amen, Hallelujah, you know, because everybody's looking at them. But uh, uh, this morning, in preparing for the meeting and praying, I really have a sense that, um, despite no matter what challenges you may be facing in life right now, and no matter what challenges are coming against the church, uh, I believe that as a people, as individuals, families, uh, uh, you all are about to experience something extraordinary in the in the life of your church in the next couple of years. I believe that uh, oftentimes churches move into bigger buildings kind of like out of a it's a faith optimism thing you know remember that old line if you build it they will come well, it doesn't always work out that way I've actually known churches who have gone bankrupt because they thought well if we just build this huge you know uh, meeting room everybody's going to come and then all of a sudden people didn't come and they couldn't afford the payments on it and that's the difference sometimes between a good idea and a God idea but Prophetically, you moving into this place, it wasn't just a good idea, it was the Holy Spirit inspired, I believe. And it's not just for Durham and even the region, but beyond that. One of the, uh, in the 40 years that I've been doing what I've been doing internationally, I started when I was three years old. <laughs> but in, in, uh, all the years I've been doing this, uh, I go to a wide variety of churches and uh, all over the globe, from Cape Town, South Africa, to Helsinki, Finland, to London, across North America and Europe. Um, uh, although every year I do go to a few places I've never been to before, primarily I try to focus on churches I've had a long-standing relationship with, because God's all about relationship and that valuing and tracking the journey. But... Um, for you all, uh, you're, you're called to be what I call a KRC, not to be confused with KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. A KRC is what I call a Kingdom uh, Renewal Center. It's a place where other people from other churches and even non-Christians can come, and they can experience the goodness of God, and they may continue to be part of another church or whatever, but it's a, it's a place that houses, the makes a resting place for the glory of God, as Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 66. But as well, they do training and equipping. And I just want to step out on a limb here and say that even this morning, uh, these meetings we're having, and I'm so encouraged that, you know, you have, what, uh, two days of sunshine a year in Durham, but yet here you are. You know? <laughs> I was just saying to somebody, this would be kind of like a cool spring day for me in San Diego. But um, I'm so encouraged you're here because I I believe God's up to something. And um, this message, it's uh, tied in with some things that quite often I share uh, out of, uh, as I mentioned, the most recent book I've written is called Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown. You're called to be a breakthrough people, not only for your lives, but for um, many others. But there's some things I, I want to try to illustrate that uh, just we're kind of grabbing hold of this morning. So give me a, a little bit of grace if everything doesn't come out quite as succinctly. And if you don't like it, just throw a rocket at your pastor. Or, you know, <laughs> some. So um, the first time in the Gospels, Jesus really, and isn't it remarkable, your heater seems to be working. It's like an oven standing right here. (laughs) I don't know if anybody else is warm. (laughs) But one of the first times Jesus really revealed himself to be the Messiah was with a Samaritan woman. And uh, the Samaritans were kind of like the cousins, so to speak, of the Jewish people. There was a lot of rivalry between them. And you know the story. It's in John chapter 4 that uh, Jesus uh, comes to a town, uh town of Samaria. Uh, this is Luke, John 4, verse 5, uh, called Sychar. And near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now before we proceed... I just want to point out that Jesus is stepping outside of proper cultural boundaries at that time. Because a good, proper Hebrew man would never be seen in public talking with a woman unless it was his wife, his sister, or his mother. There was just, you know, a completely different set of uh, social interaction laws at that time. And so he says to this woman, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? So this is the second cultural barrier that Jesus is breaking, that the uh, the Jewish people kind of despise the Samaritans, uh, you know, and actually we refer to them as dogs, making meaning outside the covenant of God, really far from God. So, number one, Jesus is speaking publicly with this woman. Secondly, it is a Samaritan woman. But Jesus responded to her in verse 10 and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. And in, so to speak, Jesus is in the process here prophetically of revealing himself for the first time to be the Christ during the Messiah. And I want to stop there because one of the things I feel like the Lord wants to emphasize this morning is that each of us, and this includes you, turn to the person next to you and point at him and say, he's talking to you, you are appointed... Called and created to be a gift to many people. It doesn't matter whether at this point, whatever lens they see you through, it doesn't matter what sort of cultural lens they see you through, it doesn't matter what sort of religious filter they may view you from. You were created to God, by God, to be a gift, a blessing, a conduit, if I can use that word, to the grace of God. Beyond what people think. So I'm going to attempt to do a couple of things here. And, you know, for me, um, uh, I'm not even functioning until my do- angels have had a double espresso about, you know, 10 or 11 in the morning. So uh, forgive me if this is not quite as artistic as it should be. But I want to talk about the momentary, the daily... Wow, look at that handsome guy. Uh, This close to Scotland, I thought I have to wear a plaid shirt, you know. I don't know if they would appreciate the cowboy detailing, but there we go. So, but I want to talk about what motivates you, and not only what motivates you, but what governs your soul in day in, day out, the decisions you make, and in effect, what causes you to be cultural barriers. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He was the most free individual that ever lived. He was in the Father's love. He was completely lacking fear, fear of what people thought, and fear of what people would do to him. I spoke last night a little bit out of John three uh, uh, 4.18, that God's perfect love casts out fear. In order for you and I to run the race, that God's created you to run, what that means is we cannot be governed by fear of man, but it means stepping outside, just as Jesus was stepping outside the proper cultural zones of his day to talk to the Samaritan, let alone talk to a Samaritan woman, in the same way God wants to free you and I up. So let's just say this is little old you. If you're having a good day, you've got a smile on your face. I told you the art, the artistry was going to be lacking here. So affecting your day to day decisions, whether, you know, uh, everything from your work ethic to your choices and day to day life and your choices, your careers and everything, you have obviously, uh, we'll, we'll just say this is your, your, your body. If you're going through Uh, a lot of pain, if you're going through uh, a back injury or you have a certain disease or something like that, that will affect your choices of what you're going to do for career, school, work, all that sort of thing. But you're not only body, you're also, you have a soul. And your soul is what you process information, but it's also comprised of your memories and your emotions, Um, God wants to heal the broken hearts. We may talk about that a little bit. People who have gone through a lot of hurt and a lot of abuse have what we would call a damaged soul. And God wants to bring healing to our soul because, for example, a person that's gone through a lot of rejection in life, they will have almost a built-in expectation of rejection. And that uh, even on a subconscious level, will rob us of potentially good relationships because we begin to expect what our history has been. So in your soul, you've got your memories, you've got your emotions, but you've also got your intellect in which you process decisions on intellectual level. But then you've also got your spirit. And... Uh, as the word we had this morning, that that Jesus, in referring to people led by the Spirit, he made this kind of, almost, I don't know, uh, random statement that those who are led by the Spirit, you it, their lives are like, you see the wind, what it's doing, but you don't know where the wind has been, and you don't know where the wind is going. There can appear to be almost a randomness about what the Spirit may be saying and doing. But actually, it's quite the contrary, because the Father, who's overall, the one who the Apostle Paul called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is feeding you things from his Spirit straight to your spirit. And this is why we read about Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit. I referred last night to the story of uh, uh, Jesus doing the miracle, the greater miracle, of raising Lazarus from the dead rather than going early when they first sent him message, Come quickly, Lazarus, whom you love, is dying. He didn't go right away, did he? And Martha and Mary were rather upset with him, as I related, that when he got there, you know... Why was Jesus going all over Israel and healing everybody, but he couldn't come and pray for his friend Lazarus? They were upset with him, but then Jesus did the greater work. And again, this concept that there's a, a huge difference at times between good ideas and God ideas. And I can think my wife and I have been married uh, for, uh, it'll be 41 years we, next uh, next month. We got married when we were three. But anyway, I'm just joking with you. But I I, I can think over the years, a number of investments we've made out of our hard-earned savings that we've lost everything on. Those investments have been bad. Have any of you ever done that? Okay, a few of you. You're embarrassed to raise your hand. Those investments, it seemed great at the time, but in hindsight, it appears the, the reality is it was a good idea. Not a God idea. But in contrast to that, the investments we've made where we've been prayed and waited upon the Lord, been led by the Spirit, those have been very fruitful. But that's true not just on a financial level. It's true on every level, the decisions we make. And so you have here the leading of the Holy Spirit that does not go straight to the soul, so to speak. Although there's overlap, it goes to the Spirit. And when God speaks to our spirits, it it's all involved, you know, it it all is one, and I'm drawing these distinct circles, but actually I should have these circles more overlapping, because quite often when God speaks, as Joel said, the young men and women will prophesy, the older ones dream dreams, the young men will see visions, that as Mark Verkler puts it, when God speaks, Words and pictures will land upon the mind, but the key difference is those pictures, those words, those directions, those instructions, that encouragement that God gives you that land upon the mind, they're not rising up through your mind through the normal logical A to B to C to D process. Like, let's say something rather simple. Let's say uh, Monday morning or some Monday afternoon or whenever, you put together a shopping list for your food that week. And you think, okay, uh, Monday night we'd like to have fish and chips, Tuesday we'd like to have this, and then so on and so on. And so you are constructing uh, a list using your imagination and comprised of your experience in life, what you cook well, and uh, what you feel comfortable with experimenting, maybe it do just all that. You put together your shopping list and you end up going to the store and buying those ingredients. That is a logical process going from A to B to C to D, all ending all the way up at Z, where you're eating the food and hopefully you cooked it. But when the Lord speaks... Quite often, uh, as it comes to the spirit and it crosses over, those things all of a sudden just land there, these thoughts, these ideas. Quite often, they are very, very contrary to what our culture and even your own soul is saying, well, that can't really be right. In overarching over your life, depending upon your culture, ...is what we would call, let's see if I can even spell this correctly, cultural values. And you have a distinct set of cultural values here in the, U, in, in the UK. And as Alan has told me repeatedly, you have a very distinct set of cultural values even here in the north of, of the UK. And so these cultural values are constantly changing... Our cultural values, although you think, well, England is England and has these cultural values, a lot has changed all over the globe, especially in the Western world nations in the last 20 years, because we've made a huge transition From even though not everybody was Christian, from what was a Judaic Christian value system with values based upon the ways of God and the word of God as far as right and wrong, we have now shifted dramatically in the last 20 years in the Western world into secular humanism. And secular humanism leans very much to his own understanding. And even secular humanism can change almost month by month, week by week that if you follow the news closely, a lot of times our politicians, our government leaders, are making decisions in ways they never would have done, even five or six years ago. Things are evolving very quickly. And cultural values are based on secular humanism, which means what we can understand. And the problem is, our understanding compared to God's understanding, is this so minuscule? And so, one of the verses... Are are you still alive? Is, Is this making any sense whatsoever? Or do I need more coffee? Okay. So, can't he just preach the word? And so, last night, I related one of... For me, it's a life verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. God has more, for those who love him, more than our eyes have seen, more than our ears have heard, more than we could possibly understand. So if we look at society around us that more and more is being gripped by secular humanism and their cultural values for right and wrong, and not just their values for right and wrong, but how people determine their self-worth. Every single human being, it doesn't matter whether they're a Buddhist, whether they're Islamic, whether they're Christian, whether they're an atheist, has two essential needs in their life. One is an inherent sense of security. People are going to all sorts of extremes today to try to make themselves feel valuable. They're reaching out to all sorts of extreme groups, thinking if I adhere to this group, then it's going to give me a sense of personal value, personal significance. But the second thing is everybody is desperate for a sense of security. Now, what I'm about to say may or may not be stepping on your toes, and if it steps on your toes, feel free to grab those rocks and throw them at Allen. But <sighs> Lenin made the statement way back, I think, in the 1920s, the surest way to gain control over a population is to take over medicine, to take over health care. Now, relax, I'm not I'm not criticizing your national health care. But what I'm saying is, to quote C.S. Lewis, that the further a society gets away from worshiping God and the ways of God, the more a society has looked to government to replace God. That just happens whether people are planning on it or not. So all over the world today, we've got people increasingly looking to the governments of man to meet their every need. Are you still alive or are you about to run out the door now? Okay, I'm not attacking uh, your view of politics here as opposed to mine. I'm just saying this is a universal truth. That we were created to have a God in our life, but if it's not God himself... Even on a subconscious level, we're going to replace that with something else. And so you have all of this umbrella over your life, even if you're a Christian, even if you're sitting in a wonderful church like uh, Emanuel Center here. But overarching, and I'll use red to try to uh, signify the compassion of God, the blood of the Lamb, there's a much greater umbrella over that, And that is the kingdom of God. And these are not only uh, the moving of God's spirit, but it's the ways of God, the wisdom of God. And so, for example, we read in First Corinthians, the first few chapters, Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And he talked about, in the eyes of the world, the foolishness of preaching Christ and the cross. You know, at that time in the world, they did have other ways of, of, of doing capital punishment, of killing people that were deemed, uh, worthy of that sort of judgment. Crucifixion had been designed hundreds and hundreds of years ago by a very evil king that wanted to put people to death, but to do it slowly with the utmost pain possible so the person would suffer the most before they died. And so we commonly, we see the pictures of and the paintings of Jesus crucified, his hands outstretched, with it were, but also his legs straight. That's not how it actually was. There was a peg put through both feet, but the feet were up high. And what that caused people to do was primarily they died of asphyxiation because they're hanging from their wrists through the pegs' foot through the wrist. The only way they could gasp for breath was to painfully, because if you ever had your legs up in a position like that to raise yourself up, it's very, very painful on the thigh muscles, very painful. And so when Jesus, hanging there on the cross, uh, when he said those words, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, he was gasping for breath. It was so painful to try to raise himself up because, you know, his, the whole diaphragm of someone being crucified was dramatically stretched out. And so because crucifixion was reserved for the most heinous sort of criminals, it made absolutely no sense whatsoever for you to tell your neighbor, You've met the Messiah. The Messiah is real. Well, who is the Messiah? Who is the Savior of the world? It's Jesus. You mean that Jesus who was crucified, you know, just a few weeks ago, a month ago, a couple of years ago? You see, that does not make any sense whatsoever. And so Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, We preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to the world. And quite often, even in the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life as the Father speaks to you and, and out of his kingdom, out of his ways, his values, but also his specific will for you, it breaks through this umbrella right here of secular values and it goes straight into your spirit. But it can be, seem very, very contrary. Again, this understanding of what Jesus said that you see what the Spirit is doing, it's like the wind, you see what's happening, you see the leaves on that tree being shaken by the wind. But where the wind was at a half hour ago, where the wind's going to be a half hour from now, you don't have any idea. And it can seem like at times with our lives there is a randomness, but that randomness is only because we're being led by the wisdom of God that doesn't at times make sense to our culture of values. Wow, you're so excited. Let me try to develop this a bit more. Maybe I need a sip of coffee just to encourage me. <laughs> you know how David said, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I say that, and I also say, Drink more coffee, Mark. So, uh, in 1991... By that time, my wife and I, we had uh, established our prophetic ministry internationally. It had been going well for 10 years. Um, the first five or six years, uh, my wife and I were married as we launched out, going to Africa, going to Poland, going to uh, Nigeria. Any Anybody here from Nigeria? Glory. But uh, we went to Abba, went to Lagos, went to Port Harcourt, you know. So I was traveling around the globe, and uh, things, uh, the first five or six years, in between ministry trips, because I was going to a lot of developing nations, uh, we would end up paying all the cost, hotels, air flights, and everything. Um, we didn't have very much cash going in, so in between ministry trips, I would do carpentry jobs. I would do small remodels on houses and roofing work, things like that. But after about six or seven years, the Lord began to bless. The uh, finances got to the point where we were able to focus full-time on that, which was very helpful. And so by 1991, things in our life were uh, uh, fairly stable, so to speak, financially. And my wife and I had helped two brothers, actual blood brothers in San Diego, start a church. We had started that in 1986. By 1991, we're seeing a lot of young people getting saved. We we started the church with maybe 60, 75 people, and now by 1991, we're up to four or 500. We were seeing a lot of teenagers and young adults come to the Lord. And the church was also helping to support my wife and I financially, and most of our families on my wife and my side were all in San Diego County or Southern California. And, you know, we just had a lot going for us there, including this thing called a Lot of Sunshine. But I won't, I won't mention that. So, in early 1991, I think it was January, I ended up doing a ministry trip. ...to near Toronto, Canada... ...to a city called Stratford. It's uh, based on... ...they name it after your Stratford here... ...with the Shakespearean plays. Stratford, Ontario, Canada... ...is the number two city in the world... ...for Shakespearean plays. Uh, they have four or five major theaters there. People come from all over the world there... ...to watch the Shakespearean plays. They actually have a river running through there... ...called Avon, Stratford-on-Avon. So anyway... I'm invited, I'm, I'm glad you're appreciating these, these tidbits of information. You're all ready to buy your tickets, right? So there we go. So um, I'm there in Stratford, Avon, doing uh, a conference with a church I'd never been to. I'd never met this pastor before. His name, many of you have heard of him the past number of years, John or not. And John is a very nice guy. He'd heard about my prophetic ministry, invited me to do these meetings. And so we do the meetings Friday night, Saturday, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday, you know, and we finish the conference Sunday morning. And John says, the and Stratford is about 90 minutes west of the city of Toronto. The conference is over, and John said, Mark, you're scheduled to fly out of Toronto City to go home tomorrow, uh, uh, Monday morning. He said, but we are starting a new church plant in the city of Toronto, and our meetings are at 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon. I know you've done everything we asked you to do, but would you be willing to drive with my wife and I, Carol, to Toronto and do our afternoon meeting? And I said, well, sure, i got to make that trip anyway to fly out tomorrow morning. So this is a pastor's wife I'd never met before until three days. I liked them. They were friendly, love God, love people, so that's all cool. But as we're driving along... John said to me, you know, Mark, over the last three days, we really like how we've seen you minister to people, uh, you're teaching on healing and prophecy, praying for people. Would you consider you and your wife praying about moving from San Diego to Toronto and help us with this new church we're starting, being part of the pastoral team and continuing your international traveling? I looked at him in my mind. I said, you're crazy, Uh, you have this thing in the wintertime called snow. It's cold. Uh, Canada's a socialistic, heavy tax nation compared to where I'm from. You know, I thought, no, that's not gonna happen. But, you know, I try to to be integrous in my thinking. So I said to him, well, uh, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll pray about it. So I get home from the trip, tell my wife about this nice church I was with, nice pastoral couple, and uh, positive experience. I said, by the way, you know this is just crazy. They asked us to move there, um, uh, pray about moving there. And I said, let's just pray about it. So as I'm praying about it over about three or four weeks, I began to increasingly hear the Holy Spirit say, yes, I want you to do this. And this is not the answer I want to hear so, But I'm sure my wife is going to be saying, no, this is not of God. She's beginning to sense, yes, the Lord is into this. This is not going well. So I don't believe when we're part of a leadership team that we just make lateral movements. to So Mark and Dave, the two guys I'd started the church with that we had our leadership team, we're having a leadership meeting for the church, and uh, about a, a few weeks later I said, by the way, guys, do you remember months ago I told you about this church I was with and uh, blah, blah, blah? I said, yeah. Well, you know, it's crazy. They've asked me to pray about us possibly if Lord was willing to relocate from San Diego, be part of their pastoral team, and continue the international ministry. And they looked at me and they said, that, yeah, it's crazy. I said, yeah, I think so. I said, here's the problem. I feel like the Lord is saying Yes. Can we just pray about it? He said, Mark, it doesn't make sense. Your family, uh, for both you and Kim, is all in San Diego. You've got good weather. You've got beaches. That's things where you go and lay in the sun and the sand. Anyway, you've got great beaches in San Diego. You've got mountains. You've got the high desert. You've got financial support. You know, I said, it doesn't make any sense. I said, I know, but let's just, so we agreed to pray about it for 60 days. We reconvened. And they said, we don't know why, but we feel like the Lord is saying, as a church, we're supposed to bless you and send you to move. So, May, early May of 1992, we, as a family, our two kids at that time, we moved to Toronto. The first week there, I'm speaking at a prophetic conference. They'd set it up for when I arrived. And uh, during worship, uh, uh, in, in one of the sessions, I had an open vision of Niagara Falls, which many of you know is about 90 minutes from Toronto. Niagara Falls coming from heaven down over the city of Toronto. And the Lord said, in a year and a half, I'm going to pour out my living waters from heaven over Toronto, and it's going to go from Toronto to the nations. It turned out to be a large, a long prophecy, four pages when it's transcribed. And I shared it. They had the prophecy transcribed. It got sent out to a lot of churches and intercessors. In Toronto, I end up preaching that at several different churches in the Toronto area the next year and a half. Well, as many of you may remember, in January of 1994, our church that at that time was maybe 250, the Holy Spirit hit our church in just the most amazing ways. And we ended up having six nights a week for the next seven years meetings we averaged probably about 800 people a night. There were times we'd be getting 1,500 people a night at times three or four hundred. But they estimate that over the next seven years, we had between four and five million visitors from all over the globe, from Australia, from Africa, from the underground church in Cambodia and Vietnam. And especially leaders came and received incredible touches from God. Now, the reason I mention all of this is because I was actually ministering in Europe <clears throat> the weekend that things broke out in my church. I got back about five nights later, and John Arnott, the senior pastor, had asked Kim when she picked me up at the Toronto airport about 6 o'clock to bring me straight to one of the night meetings. And uh, I walked in, and man, our church of 250 people, all of a sudden there's like 800 people. They've come from churches all over Toronto, just passionately worshiping God and the presence of God so to speak you could almost cut cut it with a knife it was so thick in the room and i said yes this is that but The next day, I got on the phone, and I called up Mark and Dave, my two friends with, I started the church in San Diego, and I said, get out here as soon as you can. So remember the time when you could buy airline tickets on two weeks' notice and get a cheaper price? You know, now it's all crazy, but anyway, they flew out two weeks later, and for six nights a week in the meetings, they just got completely laid out for hours in the Holy Spirit, they went back to California, and a massive move of God hit our church. I remember flying back there to do meetings with them. And they did meetings every Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and they estimate that well over 100,000 Christians from churches all over San Diego uh, came to those meetings. And they called me after they'd been back for the first night. They did a spontaneous meeting on a Sunday night just said, hey, we're just going to share what we experienced. The place was packed, and the first thing they felt led to do was call up all the uh, kids about from uh, like six years old up to about 12 years old. There were about 75 of them stretched across the front. Boom, they're all down in the power of the Holy Spirit for an hour, hour and a half, just talking about visions are seen and a sense of angels and the goodness of God. And that just, that just blew things out of the water. So here's the point, that after their first night of meetings in Toronto, the next day the three of us went out to lunch. And they said to me, you know, Mark, a year and a half ago when we were praying about you moving to Toronto, it made no sense whatsoever. It was impractical. You had all the benefits of being here, family, church, and everything. But now we see the wisdom of that. So I tell you this long story to say that it's the nature of the wisdom of God, it oftentimes is a direct contrast to this umbrella we live under of social and cultural values and even of a sense of what can happen, what can't happen. Are you still alive? That on two different occasions... That the presence of the Lord with Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was a hundred, Sarah's in her nineties. They've never been able to have children. And you know, they've been living with their problem, this promise that their descendants will populate the nations. But they have a visitation of the angel of the Lord in the form of three men. And the Lord said, at this time next year, I will return to you and the child of promise will be born. This is Genesis 18. And when you read the account, it's interesting because uh, Abraham and Sarah, they dwelt in a large Bedouin tent. They were very, very wealthy, had many, many sheep and animals. They had uh, their, their own private army. They had many, many people under their umbrella. You know, he was a very powerful, prestigious man, but they never had had their own children, despite the fact that God had promised that to them for decades and decades. But Sarah was in a different part of that Bedouin tent when the Lord said to Abram, At this time next year, I'll return to you, and the child of the promise promise be born. It says that Sarah laughed. And the Lord said to Abram, uh, Why did Sarah laugh? And she tried to deny it. Oh, I didn't laugh, but she did. <laughs> but when you read about Sarah in Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, it, it talks about men and women that God has used powerfully to shape history. It talks about Sarah, and it says she believed God capable of what he promised her. So we have this contrast that when Sarah, after decades, probably her and Abraham had given up on the promise they were going to have their own children, and now she hears the Lord say, at this time next year, the child will be born to you, she laughs. It wasn't what I would call a deep theological regard. Say, well, that's never going to happen. But sometimes when you've been believing and believing, hoping and hoping, praying and praying, all of a sudden the breakthrough comes and it's it's almost like this can't really be happening. It's too good. That she did believe. But it's interesting what the Lord said to her. Why did Sarah laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. But it, by the way, never argue with God. It just it just makes things worse as time goes on. You always pay a higher price for those arguments. But anyway, the but, uh, Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? And she said, oh, I didn't laugh. And the angel of the Lord said to her, the things that are difficult or impossible for man are never difficult for God. You fast forward about 2,000 years later to a young righteous woman Mary, minding her own business, and all of a sudden, she has an encounter with the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel says to her, hail, favored one, and she's looking around, who are you talking to, and says, you have been chosen to give birth to the Christ, the Messiah, and she asked a good question, she said, how can this happen, I'm not even married, and he said, no problem, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, well, that explains everything, doesn't it, but... The angel Gabriel said to her almost exactly what the angel of the Lord had said 2,000 years before to uh, Abraham and Sarah. He said, the things that are impossible or difficult for man are never difficult for God. And so, of course, she ended up having giving birth to the Messiah. And so, we have all these cultural values. And... Part of the cultural values we can see in our culture increasingly wanting to bless sin. We're in a day and age where people are calling evil good and good evil. But also, over these cultural values that we're living under secular humanism, as I mentioned earlier, two distinct things. One, your sense of significance. Your sense of sig- Significance. (laughs) Had to think about that. Your sense of significance, but also your sense of security. So, what have we just seen the last three years? We've seen our societies almost flipping out with a complete lack of a sense of security. But God says to us, according to the Apostle Paul. My God shall meet your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As Jesus said, I'm glad you're excited. Uh, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, I think it's verse 10, that the Father knows your needs even before you ask. He's watching over us that carefully. So we've seen all sorts of fear factor, and not just fear of getting COVID, but we've also seen the financial economic fears of uh, because of the lockdowns and how that's affected the economy. A lot of people in the United States, uh, at least temporarily, uh, lost their jobs, lost their income, and all sorts of ensuing problems. And as I mentioned last night, in my home state in California, we saw a 37% increase in teenage suicide during the the height of the lockdowns. We also saw across the board an increase of uh, domestic abuse, child abuse, drug abuse, increased dramatically, all sorts of things. Why? It's because people who had had some sort of balance in their life as far as a sense of security all of that was shaken and thrown out the window by the lockdowns and everything else that happened. But also, your sense of significance. We live in a world today that you are valued based upon your performance. You're based, you're valued uh, maybe upon your looks in the Instagram world. You're based upon, if you're an athlete, upon, you know... Are you a champion? Do you get the prizes? Are you at the top of your game? In the financial world, are you making this much money or are you making that much money? It's really interesting uh, uh, being on airplanes all the time. In an average year, I fly about hundred to 150,000 miles a year. And because I, I fly so much with a small group of airlines, uh, not all the time, but a lot of time, I get bumped up free of charge to business class or first class. Hallelujah, glory to God. But it's really interesting sometimes being in some of the really expensive airlines and and all of a sudden being thrust into uh, first class because there is a distinct culture and oftentimes... Let's just put it this way, I'm not quite dressed the part. (laughs) And I remember I got on this uh, Lufthansa flight one time from, uh, I think it was going from Johannesburg to Frankfurt. And they not only had economy, but they had economy plus, and then they had business, and they had first class. And glory to God, Lufthansa had the good sense to promote me all the way to first class, not just business class. And I get on at the upper part of this large airplane, and there's only about 15 seats there. And everybody is dressed to the nines, except for one person. (laughs) And people were looking at me like, kid, what are you doing here? But people derive their sense of significance by outward appearances, don't they? How much money you make, what sort of car do you have, and so on and so on. Um, where I live at in Southern California, it's a very, very plastic community. You know, you've got to be dressed cool. You've got to be making those fashion statements or else you just don't have value. But God does not value you according to your performance. He loves you because you are His son, you are His daughter. In a healthy family... When that son or when that daughter is born, we do not love our children because in 15 or 20 years they can go out and make some money for us. Although although that wouldn't be a bad thing, would it? But we delight in our children because they're ours. When you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you were born again into the family of God the father gave you what the apostle paul called in romans 8:15 the spirit of adoption and it's and paul went on to say god has not given you the spirit of slavery worried about your uh worried unto fear again but you've been adopted you see a slave lives under constant fear that if they do not work hard enough if they do not do a good enough job Maybe they will not be given their food that night. Maybe they'll be beaten, sold, or even killed. But Paul is emphatically saying, no, God has not given you a spirit of slavery uh, unto fear, but he's given you the spirit of adoption. So as David sang in Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm, the Lord sets a banqueting table before me, even in the midst of our enemies, that when you gave your life to Christ Jesus There is a permanent seat at the Father's banqueting table that's open to you 24-7. And so our well-being, even though there can be financial challenges in our life, and my wife and I have gone through a lot of challenges, when everything shut down in March of 2020, we saw our finances, our personal finances, drop by over 60%. That's a pretty significant amount. But you know what? We saw God do miracle after miracle after miracle. And as my wife and I, we prayed during that time, we drew hard on the promises of God that says, my God shall meet your every need. And I can remember in um, spring of 2021, you know, there's still in a lot of places lockdowns, the economy is still bad. I'm still not able to travel very much and do ministry. I can remember my oldest daughter came to me and uh, her her fiancé had come to me first and said, Sir, I'd like to ask your daughter's hand in marriage. And so that was great. it's a good guy. But then they came and talked to us, and they said, um, Dad, we want to get married in August of this year, 2021. My first instinct was, no, that's not going to happen because I'm the father of the bride, and the father of the bride pays all the bills for everything in, in our culture. But my wife and I prayed about it, and the Lord said, Yeah, I'm going to provide. And so they actually had the wedding service in our uh, front yard and the wedding party in our backyard. We had 90 guests. Hallelujah, it was a true super spreader event. Nobody wore a mask. I was just kind of measuring this, you know, how you respond to that. And nobody got COVID, by the way, anyway. But the point is, in order to have that wedding and to do it right by our daughter, we had to spend quite a bit of money uh, not just the stuff with the party, the catering, and all the miscellaneous things, but we had to do some landscaping in our backyard because uh, rabbits had destroyed our lawn. Most of you like little bunny rabbits. I hate them. <laughs> Three times they destroyed our lawn, and three times I replanted it. And finally, I said, "Just buy me a heat-seeking missile. I'm going to put these rabbits on." No, I didn't say that. But we end up having to put in artificial turf, you know, which is okay because water's scarce in California anyway. And on and on. But my point is that we knew that if we agreed to this, my wife and I, to have the wedding party in our backyard, you know, there was going to be a whole lot of money involved. But you know what? We saw just over the three or four months between when they told us when they were going to get married and when they got married, just God do miracle after miracle after miracle financially. And so the Word of God is absolute. And so it's not just the leading of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Word of God, the wisdom of God, that so often is contrary to the value system. And so my wife and I, we've seen this many, many times over the decades, but particularly during the COVID years, we saw our security, how it rests not in the promises of the government or even an individual. In the exact middle of your Bible, as far as volume goes with the Bible, is Psalm 118. It says, do not trust in the princes of this world, but trust in God. And it goes on to say, do not trust in man, but trust in God. He is the one who meets your every need. Now, God uses people. He uses one another, but you understand the point there. But also, your sense of significance. If you do not have a sense of significance in God, you're not going to be a risk-taker for the kingdom of God. Why do I mention risk-taking? Because in the kingdom of God, faith is spelled R I S K that when God calls you to step out, as God called my wife and I to step out and move to Toronto, or it could be a momentary stepping out. You could be at the supermarket, the train station, wherever, and all of a sudden you feel something strong inside of you about sharing the gospel with a complete stranger. Or maybe you've got an unsaved co-worker, and maybe their child has come down, their five-year-old child with the disease, and you're interceding for them. And which is good, you know, at home at night or whenever your lunch break, you're saying, oh God, would you do a miracle? But then the Holy Spirit says, I want you to talk to them, see if they'd be open to you going to the hospital and laying hands on their child. All the what ifs rise up. Well, what if God doesn't heal them? What if they say no? How's that, you know, what if it's a supervisor and, and they don't respond well? All that sort of thing. There are always a million what if questions. But as it says in Proverbs 3, 5, lean not to your own understanding, but trust the Lord with all your heart. So in our souls, in the intellectual process, where the thoughts of God, the leading of God, they come from the Holy Spirit, but they land upon the soul, so often it can be such a dramatic contrast with the values of this world. But see we're still even though we're kind of a little bit post covid we're still in a day and age where everything economically is uncertain the rate of inflation the rate of things globally changing uh what's happened last year and a half in the ukraine has impacted things dramatically all over globe uh, the globe the price of oil everything going on that you know, 30 years ago, what economists felt was fairly safe and very predictable as far as trends go, that's no longer reality today. Everything is so volatile. And with these social values and norms, the upheaval happening almost week by week now. But you see, Jesus is the rock of our salvation. This world cannot can can be shaken so easily, but the kingdom of God is absolute. Mark, that was a good point you made. Only three people responded to that, so maybe you need to say it again. The kingdom of God is unshakable. The Father's love for you, the Father's care for you. And so, as a church, I mean, this is true of all Christians, but as a church, as a people, and I do appreciate we have some visitors here, but just take this as is for you too. You have a unique call upon you to be a pioneering people. What do pioneers do? They go into uncharted lands. Your enthusiasm is like a tidal wave coming back to me. Pioneers go into uncharted lands, places they've never been to before. That could be a new job, a new ministry, a new skill set in serving God. It could be all sorts of things. But when you're going into uncharted lands, it's things you've never done before, things you don't know how it's going to work out. But we come back to that prophetic word that those that are led by the Spirit, they're like the wind. You don't know where it's been or what it's going. So I know I look like I'm about 38, but I'm uh, 66 years. I'll be 67 this November. I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are either talking about retiring or they they have retired. And I'm thinking retirement, I'm just starting to get a little bit good <laughs> at what I'm called to do. So I'm looking at the next 15 years of going full tilt. Maybe not traveling as much in 10 years as I'm traveling right now, but I feel, I know in my heart of hearts, we've had several confirming prophetic words and things I've seen God do last year. We're stepping into a whole new realms of ministry with what we're doing, and and spheres of influence, the Lord wants to give us. And I do realize that a lot of people have certain jobs. I'm not talking about you know doing something that requires a lot of physical or emotional energy at 90 about maybe what you were doing at 45. But I'm talking about we are created by God to be a people that, as it says in Psalm 84, go from strength to strength. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, from glory to glory. And I would say to you, from breakthrough to breakthrough. And sometimes those breakthroughs, they don't happen every day or every week. But the thing about pioneering, you invade that new territory, you, so to speak, master the land. You get good at it, and as you get good at it, you pave the way for others to follow. And then you go, well, what's next, Lord? What is the Lord doing? And even some of you that are sitting here, you may be 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. I would say to you that most likely God has things in store for you that have not entered your information, enter into your thought process yet. And that you're aware of talents that you have, you're uh, aware of abilities you have that are beginning to develop. But 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, God has more for you than your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, more than you can understand. And so this message, I don't care whether you're 18 years old or you're 88, God is calling us to be a people that do things we've never done before. And I'll finish with this story before we pray. I was pausing to see if someone may say amen at that point. <laughs> but I'll finish with this story that uh about 5 years ago i did a uh a conference in uh taichung in uh taiwan taichung is the second largest city in taiwan it's the, in the center of the island nation there and we, our focus was healings and miracles and we had a number of testimonies that happened during the ministry time there, but the best one happened about a week, week and a half after the conference was over. I, I was already home by that point, and the elders wrote me. So there was a lady who went to the church. She did not come consistently. She'd be there like two or three Sundays a month. She was not highly involved in the church, was not part of a home group, not part of the ministry team. You know, she was just kind of a casual visitor, but she came. To the conference, four nights and three days. She took on all the teaching. And so, did I share this last night? about. Okay. So she would, um, for exercise, two or three times a week, she would go to a public swim hall and swim laps. And she's sitting outside the swim hall on a bench waiting for her husband to pick her up in the car. And that wall that separated that part of the pool, the swim hall from the street, had a thick plexiglass uh, a wall. And so on the opposite end of the bench her is an older gentleman sitting there uh, waiting for the bus whatever. And all of a sudden, he just completely fell over. He stopped breathing. The crew that worked in the swim hall, they're trained in CPR, so they came running out attempting to resuscitate the guy. They're not getting anywhere. He's turning blue and he's dying. And she said uh, she was sitting at her end of the bench as they're all doing this, just quietly in her heart, as most of us would be, interceding, oh God, please do something, you know, please, you know, do a miracle here. But all of a sudden, the thought, remember what I said, things come from the spirit, and they go from the spirit, they jump to the soul, that thoughts, pictures, ideas, they just land upon the mind. All of a sudden, the thought came to her, wait a minute, You just spent four nights and three days hearing that not only does God do miracles, but he loves to do miracles. He's God of compassion and grace. I want you to go lay hands on the man. Now, she is not even part of the prayer ministry team in her church. She, in effect, is not just going from the shallow end of the pool... But to the deep end of the pool, she's never even dragged her big toe in the, 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 the in the shallow end of the pool to suss out the temperature. You know, she's never even gone swimming when it comes to healings and miracles before. She feels very awkward. She's dealing with all the what ifs. She uh, kind of goes over to where they're trying to resuscitate the guy and feels very awkward. And they're looking at it like, "What are you doing?" She put a hand upon the man's chest and said, In the name of Jesus, I rebuked the spirit of death, and I call you back to life. The old boy sat up immediately started breathing. 100% recovery. So I, I, I love the testimonies that happen while I'm actually in a church doing the meetings, but that's not the point. The point is that all of us in our day-to-day lives should be filled with the spirit. Because the Spirit is upon us as well. So I said I would close with that story. I kind of fibbed. I'm going to close with what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you've got your Bible, just quickly go there. Uh, Luke chapter 4 is when Jesus, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, returns to his home village after the 40 days of being tempted by the devil. And it says to him, um, uh, where are we at here? Uh, it says to him uh, on uh, verse 16 of Luke 4, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and this is Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, say me, as a disciple of Christ, you are to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty of the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." So the year of the Lord's favor was obviously 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. But you know what? This is the day the Lord has created. And I want to say right now, not just when we get to heaven, not just when you uh, get that college degree and get that job, or not just when you go from one level of job to another and get your promotion, but this is the day the Lord has created This is the day to seek first the kingdom of God. Okay, let's all stand. We're going to do a brief time of ministry, then we're going to take a break. Is that right? Say that again. Okay, so not do ministry right now. Is that what you're saying? Okay. The spirit just got quenched. No. Just, no. <laughs> okay, I I I, I want to do just a quick um a quick thing in ministry and then we'll take a, a break and we'll have worship and a longer time of ministry uh before we break for this afternoon. But here's what I'd like to do. And I realize this uh, Let's, let's do this. Uh, you, you people look like you're so eager and so filled with faith. <laughs> One of you is excited. Here's what I'd like to do. Could we get very quickly in a group of two, three, four people? You may have to get out of your seat to do this. But let's get in a group of two, three, four people and try to get in a circle if you can. Okay, <laughs> Alan's there. They've got five people, and there's six people. <laughs> okay, is everybody in a group? Okay, here's what I'd like you to do. Um, this may seem a little bit hokey or religious, but put hands on the shoulder of the person next to you. Okay, okay, okay. I, and this may be hard to do, but I'd like you to look at one another And say to them, I bless you in the name of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you to do the very things that Jesus did. You have a unique calling upon you to set the captives free, to heal the broken hearted. That the deaf may hear, the lame may walk, the poor may have the good news preached to them, and the captives might be set free. I bless you in the name of Jesus to know you have value because you're a child of God. You have significance. Because of who you are in Christ Jesus. And you are secure in the love of the Father. So I bless you to be filled with the Spirit. To be bold in the Holy Spirit. To be creative in the Holy Spirit. And to do things you've never done before. Amen.